Welcome to this week's episode of the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick. This week we are joined by Bill Simmons. Let's get it. Yahoo Sports presents the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick, powered by digital media. Find your voice. And now, your host, JJ Reddick. Welcome to this week's episode of the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick. This week we are joined by a special guest, a very special guest, a man who needs no introduction, <laughs> Bill Simmons. You know, this is, I never do other people's podcasts. That's one of my rules. That's one of the things I wanted to talk about. I know, but you did my test show, and then mm-hmm. you did my actual show, <laughs> and I always wanted you to be on the Celtics, so I felt like this was a good compromise. I broke my rule for you. It almost happened, you and the Celtics. It there almost happened a couple when, times. Yeah, yeah. They were all, because we have like a Duke, the number two owner is from Duke. and there's a Paliuka, big, yeah. Yeah, there's, so they always were talking about you. You get asked to do podcasts, I assume, a lot. Well, my issue is if you do like one, then you, yeah. then it's like I turned down this one and, and yeah. I don't know. I, I always just wanted to be exclusive to my own podcast. I also owe Woj. We should mention like, you know, you're part of the vertical. Yeah. I doubted Woj. I made one of the biggest mistakes of 2016 for me was doubting a Woj report. <laughs> I looked into the eyes of a lion. This is the Kevin Durant to Golden State. Yeah. I just thought it was bullshit. And not him. I thought people were leaking it to him to try to start dissension with Golden State. Or I just didn't trust it. And meanwhile, you know, as it turns out, these Golden State guys are texting KD for like two years. It's a very real thing. Yeah. So there's a moniker out there about you that you're the the pod father. Do you embrace that? Oh, that's interesting. You've Uh, never heard that? that Well, Jalen started that. that. Okay, Jalen. Yeah, yeah. My first one was May 2007. Mark Stein was the guest. (laughs) And uh, it wasn't even called the BS Report at that time. No, it was right? it had a terrible name. It was called <laughs> I the Sports Guy. It was awful. And we had like terrible music. I asked Mark Stein, I've told this story before, but I heard this Chad Ford podcast. It was the 2007 was the year the Celtics had, you know, we were in the lottery and had sure. a chance to get Odin or Durant. And he had Danny Ainge on this thing called a podcast. And I clicked it and it was like this 20 minute interview and it was on demand. I was like, what the hell is this? How do I get one of these? And they told me, um, ESPN told me it should be about, you know, 15 to 20 minutes. People have short attention spans with these. And I'm like, well, ESPN's usually wrong about content all the time. (laughs) So I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to go for 60 minutes. And within like, I think my second one was with Adam Carolla. It was 60 minutes. And then from there on, it was always like an hour. And I had like a three or four year window there because there weren't a lot of podcasts where every time somebody did mine, they thought it was awesome. It was like, wow, that was great. I had so much fun. (laughs) Yeah. And now there's a million podcasts. Now there is a million podcasts. Did you ever think when you started nine years ago that you would be getting interviewed by a current NBA player on his own podcast? You know, it's that's been one of the most interesting things that's happened in the last three or four years is how players have been able to just bypass the media. Yeah. And now you guys, you have so many different ways to get your personality out, your takes out. You can challenge media people. <laughs> I noticed that when I was on Countdown. Like the first year I was on Countdown was 2012, 2013. And there was a few times during the season where I'd say something on the show and the guy would just come at me on Twitter. Yeah. I remember Mo Williams got mad at me once. Something it, about his team. <laughs> I said his team didn't have a point guard. He's like, well, what the hell am I? I was like, oh, sorry, Mo Williams. Yeah, it's really interesting what's happened over the last five or six years. You know, the podcasting, the the Players' Tribune, we, of course, have to mention in terms of athletes being able to control their message. But social media was just a complete game changer. Totally. For athletes. 
it's like the greatest thing for an athlete and and probably for a celebrity too but for an athlete it really allows us to control the narrative around our careers and our brands and to fire back because there was this time and i look back at some of the columns i wrote on espn the first five years the art of writing a column changed and a lot of why it changed was because of social media and when i grew up you wrote a column you took a hard take one way or the other so i'd be like the Clippers can never win a title with Chris Paul and Blake Griffin. <laughs> yeah. And that would be your, your case, and you would just argue the hell out of it. Right. But now, because of social media, if you take a stand like that and you argue that hard about it, just one side, you don't present the other side at all, you just get crucified. Yeah. And now everything's a lot more balanced. And I think Zach's a good example, Zach Lowe, of somebody like he just lays out the case and presents both sides, and he has an overall big-picture point but he's not like harsh. Like he wouldn't write Blake Griffin can never win a title or like people just don't really write that way anymore. And that's the whole hot take culture. Is Zach in a category of his own when it comes to not only just NBA sports writers, but maybe, maybe all of sports writers. No, I I think there's other people who do what he does. I, I think what makes him special and the reason we liked him initially, we actually fucked up hiring him in 2011 he was supposed to be the first year of Grantland and we just screwed it up. And I was like, God damn it. Like <laughs> this is cause you could, we knew he was good, like, yeah. but he they had him writing four times a day. Yeah. And so this is when he was with SI. Yeah. Yeah. So they have him writing four times a day and he had great angles and great ideas, but I could just tell as another writer that he was on a hamster wheel. And when, when you have to write that off and you're just banging stuff out and then you go to the next thing. And I'm like, this guy should be writing like three times a week. So that was our big pitch to him. And we finally got him the summer of 2012. We brought him in. And the biggest thing we we pushed him on was, you know, how can you make more connections? You know, SI would send him to All-Star Weekend. And he would be writing, you know, he'd be in his hotel room or he'd be in some press thing. And he wasn't, like, talking to people. So we would just send him this stuff and be like, don't even write. I don't care if you write. Go to Summer League. Just go. And just talk to people. And what makes him different, other than the way that he was able to break down video and kind of explain stuff like a scout, is just how hard he works. Like, he talks to everybody. And the cool thing about his career, a lot of the people that he was talking to, you know, he'd be talking to the assistant head scout of the Clippers or the assistant to the assistant GM of the Celtics. And then what happens is those people start rising up the ladder and they become... A head coach, <laughs> yeah. and they become a GM, and now he's got these great yeah. sources. And, you know, Woj is another example. Woj just, he just outworked everybody, and he made a ton of connections. And as those connections rise up the ladder, all of a sudden, you're getting the Russell Westbrook three-year extension scoop, you know? I started following Zach and a bunch of other NBA writers when I joined Twitter, which was right around the time the NBA lockout happened. And I, I used Twitter as sort of my yeah. news source for the lockout. Yeah, that but was the, a really fascinating time for the NBA. Uh, it, was, it was insane. There was nothing to write about, and everybody loved the NBA, and, and it was just... And, and Twitter and the NBA are like made for each other. It's, and so is Instagram. <laughs> I was saying, I said to the Ringer guys, I was like, I just want to know everything Team USA is doing. I can't get bored of Team USA Instagram photos. You know, I just, I just love the thought of all these rich NBA players in Brazil <laughs> with nothing to do all day other than make fun of each other. Just give me everything about it. Going back to Zach, I had 
a beer with him. And I lived in New York City in 2012 during the summer. I had a beer with him in Soho one day. It's my first time meeting him. We had spoken on email a few times. Yeah. And, you know, that was the beginning of our relationship. We've become friends. And one of the things that's happened with social media is not just the ability of players to sort of fire back at the media, but develop relationships. You to reach you, out to them. You see it all the time now where, like, players and media are actually friends. It, yeah. It's very weird. And it probably didn't exist 10 or 20 years ago. Well, you know what's interesting? I, I think it used to be the case way back when. Like, one of my favorite books is called The uh, the Short Season. Mm-hmm. Came out 40 years ago. It was this guy at the Globe, John Powers, spent the season covering the Celtics for the Boston Globe. Yeah. And a lot of the book is like, so after the game, I was at the Scotch and Sirloin with John Havlicek, Dave Cowens, and he's just hanging out with these guys. And they're flying on planes. They're flying from Boston to Cleveland. They're connecting through Detroit. He's on the plane with them. They're hanging out in terminals for five hours. And they had like real relationships. And if he wrote something that pissed off the coach, there's the coach. Oh, there's the coach in the terminal restaurant. And, and then over the next 30 years, I think during the MJ era, the players begin to mm-hmm. separate. And now yeah. all of a sudden you have chartered plans. Yeah. And now you have in the locker room, you can control that. There's a million people in the locker room, so you can basically just kind of go on autopilot, shut everyone out. And it does seem like Twitter DMs has allowed that connection to mm-hmm. kind of reestablish. Like 10 years ago, you never would have been able to reach out to Zach. Right. Reestablish is a good word, because I do think there's still guys that have a little bit of pushback towards the media. I think as a whole, because I, I read Hoops Hype, and, I, and I'm on Twitter quite a bit, and I see a lot of guys' reactions to negative things written about them. And I don't know if it's just because of my experience at Duke, but I, I feel like I have pretty thick skin. If somebody writes something about me, like yeah. there really isn't a reaction that I get. <laughs> well, but you, as went, a you whole, went to camp for, for how to take shit. <laughs> yeah. As a whole, though, like, do you think NBA players are too sensitive when it comes to the media? You're a bad judge of that, though. I you were think like they 20 are. years old, and you were you were <laughs> like a villain. 19, yeah, 18. Yeah. And you were yeah. just a villain. Everyone was like, like Fuck the most, that guy. the most hated guy in America at 19. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great. But seriously, though, think about what great training that was. You don't get phased during games ever at all. You've heard everything. Everything you can say to another human, I've literally heard everything. There's and nothing. You've gone in like when you're in college, especially in the South, and you're at Duke, and you're going into North Carolina. That is a scarier situation than any NBA situation. The level of hatred that those fans have for Duke trumps anything in the NBA. But yeah, I think, back to your point, Like I think it's gotten into some NBA players' heads. I think it absolutely gotten into... It exists, for sure. Absolutely gotten into Durant's head. I think Dwight Howard, to me, I remember writing about it at the time. Dwight Howard was the first time... I actually think it kind of affected the destiny of the NBA in some ways because he wanted out of Orlando... You played with Dwight, so you you know him pretty well. But he wanted out of Orlando, and then he took so much shit on Twitter for it that he kind of <laughs> he kind of panicked and changed his mind. Yeah. And I had a couple people tell me like, all Dwight does is look at his Twitter replies, and the, and they all got in his head, and he panicked, and then he signed this extension, and they, and all of a sudden he was staying. And like ten years ago, he just would have been like, "Give me the f out of here." So I definitely think it's a thing, and I think it's a thing for Durant. I think it's made Durant. I met Kevin Durant. I spent a couple of days in Oklahoma City in 2010. Just normal, mm-hmm. nice guy. 
and there was definitely an edge to him the last couple mm-hmm. of years. And I do think part of that is social media, people like me bringing up the hard and trade all the time, mm-hmm. people wondering if his foot's going to come back, people wondering if they've missed their window. I think it made him mad. I think it made Westbrook mad. Another guy is Derek Rose. I think that that happened to no question. over the last five or six years. It hardens your soul a little bit. I think you just can't look. I, I yeah, mean, yeah, I yeah. don't look at my Twitter replies. I, if yeah. I was an NBA player, I definitely wouldn't. Oh, I don't look at my Twitter after games. I, the, the reason I look at Twitter is for news, obviously. But in terms of my replies, like when I started my podcast, I was like, all right, I'm going to use this feedback. to sort of get feedback, but also to interact with people that are listening to the podcast. And it's been great. I want to get back to the podcast thing. I talked with Jerry Ferrara about this because he has his own podcast as well. But by the way, everybody has their own podcast. Well, that's that's what I want yeah. to talk about. It's like, are there it's too like many, having a blog. Are there too many? Ago. Yeah, are there too many podcasts? It seems a little oversaturated. Or is this the new normal? Is this where we're going? Is everything um, going to be digital? I think it's going to become easier and easier for people to have podcasts, and it already is. But I still think the good ones will. It'll be like what happened on the internet. The good ones are always going to win. Yeah. And it's like if you have interesting content, you put thought and time into it with podcast content still going to win conversation still going to win we made a big bet at the ringer on podcast because i saw how well they worked for us at grantland at uh at espn they never knew what to do with podcasts they never knew how to sell them they never knew how to kind of create a network espn's attitude was just everybody gets a podcast which isn't the way to do it i think the network has to complement each other in some way and i think uh if you do it correctly the audience is there and what's what's cool now like five years ago, there was only like six or seven podcasts that mattered. I was lucky enough to have one of them at the time. Mm-hmm. Now there's so many more and they, and they all hit different demos. And it's much harder to hit a lot of demos at the same time. But like, you know, you can have the TV demo. Not you, but like you could have a podcast just geared to TV and you're going to get it. We just had Keeping It 1600 on, on The Ringer that really took off. And yeah. it has like over 200,000 listeners per pod now. And it's politics, and that's it. And it's like either people listen to it for the politics or they hate listen to it. So so what's your strategy when you decide to build that network out at the ringer? Quality. Specifically. Yeah. Quality. People that, are, that we think can grow into something good, people who have chemistry, having a network that complements each other. Like that having the mm-hmm. podcasts, maybe you have 10, 11, 12, 13 different podcasts on seven or eight feeds and making sure that they all make sense collectively and people aren't overlapping. I mean, the NBA has been something that we got to get better at this season just because the one thing I didn't, you know, I was so happy to leave ESPN, but the one thing I forgot about when I left was like, they have a lot of talent. And I look back at my podcast and I was using a lot of ESPN people. I, I mean, Zach to me is the toughest one, like not having a Zach being unable to do podcasts with Zach is like literally painful for me. <laughs> like I, it was just one of, we both loved it. It's really rare to find somebody that you have such great chemistry with. We're different. We look at basketball differently. Like I'm definitely more fan, more passionate. He's more clinical. And uh, I just miss it. Like I, I just miss what we had, but we also like, I would have Van Gundy and all these different people. Oh, yeah. So to replace that has yeah. been a challenge. No question. You've brought up ESPN a couple of times. I'm, I'm going to stick I didn't, away. I didn't mean, no, no, no I didn't I'm mean stay, I'm stay away, away from, from any, you know, controversy surrounding your departure. But uh, we were talking earlier, and, and I, I think this is an interesting conversation to have just in terms of doing a show on ESPN, like Countdown or yes, the, the halftime show. show, doing the studio show versus a podcast where yep. the conversation on one, on the show, the studio show is very scripted. 
and a podcast is very free flowing. And at least in my experience, and, and this is not just on going on ESPN, but the times I've done it, there's like a level of frustration, I think, when I get done, like, oh, I didn't get to sort of express myself or say what I wanted to say. I noticed that when I saw you on there once. Well, I've noticed <laughs> it every time because yeah. I got like my PhD in studio shows. I did that show for two years and they're just constructed wrong. They're just flat out fundamentally constructed wrong. We, we would have a half hour to do a pregame show. First of all, like this is in the NFL. It's like, great, Orlando's playing New Orleans tonight. It's, you don't really need a pregame show for that. People are going to click on it. I always thought the show should have just been its own show for a half hour. But the way I think, and it's not just ESPN. I think Fox does this. I think all the networks do it. And you watch the NFL studio shows. It's very produced. It revolves around the host. You plan out what you're going to say. And then you just take turns speaking. It's not a conversation. And that was my biggest frustration. It's like, if you come out, you have five minutes in the first block. And the way they set it up is the host starts, takes a minute to set everyone up, which I never understood either. It's like, and there's JJ Reddick. You know him from the LA Clippers, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's great to be here. And there's, and then that, so that's a minute wasted. And then you go in and it's like, and JJ, you, you really feel like this is a must win for them tonight. I certainly do. You say your point, then it's Jalen's turn to speak and you just kind of go in a row. And the challenge for me and the thing that I was really fascinated by and, and we could never totally get there is how do you just make it like we're all hanging out? How do you make it organic? Yeah. yeah. We were, I remember we were at the finals in 2014. Like I love Doug Collins. Yeah. I know you know Doug Collins. Yeah. He's a family friend. Obviously what? Chris, his son is one of my best friends and was in my wedding as, as, as one of my groomsmen and kind of an older brother to me. So Doug's family. Doug is like I call him coach. He's like my coach. Yeah, he never yeah. coached me. He's just, there was one time this summer when I just called him and just talked to him. Like, you know, he's just like one of those guys, but I love coach and Jalen, obviously we were super tight and we we're sitting at this hotel bar. We were staying at the Mandarin Oriental cause that's where they would put us up. We were just outside killing time. We had lunch, three of us and a friend of mine came and joined us and we talked basketball for an hour. Actually it was like two hours. And at the end of it, my friend was like, I don't understand why this isn't the fucking show. And I was like, I don't understand it either. That's one of the reasons I'm so unhappy with this. Like, <laughs> this should be the show. It's people talking basketball. And yeah. that's what TNT, they have just managed to figure it out. Yeah. The game ends. Those guys are hanging out for 12, 13 minutes. And really, the, the problem with studio TV is time. Yeah. It's If you have four minutes, you rush. Oh, I got to get my point in. I love doing the draft. The draft was really fun. Like that was me, Billis, Jalen, and Reese. Yeah. And it was free form. It was still, like you would love doing the draft. It's three and a half hours. It's free form. It's, it's produced, but not the same way. It's funny you mentioned that conversation with the Mandarin because I kind of had the same experience when I did the countdown during the playoffs, uh, during the Eastern Conference Finals. You know, we did the pregame show. We do the halftime show. I stuck around after and did SportsCenter. The best basketball conversations I had were in the production room before the game the green and at halftime yeah. with Doug and Jalen just sitting back and, and talking. And I do get you know the time constraint, and obviously you do have to, in a way, sort of stick on script. But that's a totally different experience than what you're doing right now. Well, you're, one you're, other thing on yeah. that, because I remember one time, the first year I was on, it was me, Wilbon, Magic, and Jalen. And for some reason, we had an hour. Yeah. 
And when you have an hour on those kind of shows, then you can have a seven or eight minute segment. And I remember it was it was Martin Luther King Day, I think, yeah. or it was right around there. And we did this whole eight minute conversation about the black athlete and the black NBA player and the guys like Russell and how they paved the way for the guys now. And it was the right amount of time and it was really good. I don't know if it's online. And I remember we went to commercial and all of us were so happy. We were like, <laughs> wow. That was like I, that. Something happened there. That was great, and it's to me, it's just about the time. It's if you don't have enough time, it sucks. You know when the, a segment's good. Like the segment finishes, and you can feel it totally. every time, right? Totally. Yeah. And that, that's like with trying to create my show. It's like, how do we create a TV show that captures everything I like about a podcast and the conversations? And that's why we've been tinkering every single show, trying to figure out what's the right length, how long should we have to tape? My shows probably should be an hour. And then right now it's a half hour and we're making do with that. But ultimately like, you know, like Caitlyn Jenner on and it just went to a couple really cool places and we probably had 30 minutes of stuff. We had you and Lamorne on. Yeah. We had to edit down to seven and a half and it was good. It flowed and it looked good, but it really should have been an 11 minute segment, you know? And that's the thing. It's like, it always comes down to time with TV. It's amazing. No matter how much time you have, you always want like two more minutes. If you had to succinctly sort of explain any given Wednesday yeah. and the goal of any given Wednesday, what would it be? The goal eventually would be smart. Con- I mean, the goal has always been the same. I'm good at talking to people. Yeah. How does that become a TV show? Mm-hmm. And how do you put celebrities and athletes and smart people and people like Cuban and people like Elon Musk, who I haven't had yet, how do you put them in an environment where they're totally comfortable? So from that point, we've succeeded because... Yeah, I think one of my favorite things that's happened, we've only done six episodes, and I don't think we'll know until about the 20th episode what kind of show it is. Sometimes it takes time. Like John Oliver is a finished product. He had a whole summer on The Daily Show to practice his, you know, when he got to HBO, he was basically done. This is going to take longer. But my favorite thing was having Chris Bosh on because I knew from doing a podcast with him that he's one of the most thoughtful athletes, not mm-hmm. just NBA players. Like yeah. he's on, it's almost like what, like how you think where he's, it's on a big picture plane. And I knew like the Durant thing happens and we were lucky enough to have Bosch scheduled that week. And it's like, this is fucking great. Like what better person to talk about what it's going to be like for Durant to go to Golden State <laughs> yeah. than Chris Bosch, yeah. who's thoughtful and smart and also has been through all of the same things and all of a sudden was a villain. And the way he talked about it, I thought was, I just haven't seen that on TV in that way. And going back to the studio show point, if you put Chris Bosh on a half hour studio show, it's like, all right, Chris Bosh, what do you think? And he has 30 seconds. He's not going to be as good. But in that environment, he was great. I mean, I really thought we had 20 good minutes and we had to cut it down to 12. But that's where I want to get to with that show. Mm-hmm. You put people really comfortable who are smart, you know, and I want to have you on a bunch more times and put you with different people and and see who you click with and hopefully have more time with it. The show is very much in its infancy, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, during this time, yeah. where you're still tinkering, you're still trying to figure out what works, how much do you pay attention to ratings and reviews? Are you so focused on the process? I don't look at any of the stuff what people are talking about. The ratings thing's interesting because the, all HBO cares about is the audience mm-hmm. and the relevance. And we created a show that... There's going to be nights where nobody's going to watch the first show at the same level that they would watch it normally, depending on what else is on. So 
it's not a live show. There's sometimes maybe not as much urgency with the show we created. So like, you know, the fourth episode, we're going to get the ESPYs and LeBron and Carmelo and those guys come out. And it's like, all right, well, anyone who likes sports is going to drift over there because who the hell knows? And the fifth episode, we're going to get to Obama. So we care about like the cum audience. Yeah. And we created a show that can be watched in a bunch of different ways. Like HBO now, like the, I think it's like 20% of the people that watch a show watch on HBO now, which is a good number. And then the ability for people to watch it whenever they want. And that's the end of the show. It's like not just all the re-airs and all the ability for people to catch up on it or whatever, but also like the extra time clips and the things like that. Like we have the episode six, we have nine minutes of Caitlin talking about the Kardashians and Kanye and Kim. And it's like, it was great. And it wasn't, we didn't have the time for it in the show, but you can watch it online. My friend, Ben Winston, who I've had on the podcast is the showrunner and producer for the late, late show with James Corden. And great example. We've talked about this before in terms of ratings and what CBS's goals are. And one of the cool things that's happened with that show, and, and it happened initially with your show with the Ben Affleck interview, yeah. is because of the way people are consuming media now, it's almost more important that something goes viral. In, in a way. It's it's relevance. Yeah. You have to have a moment that matters every once in a while. Yeah. And I think Corden's a good example. Like Corden, Carson Daly, I think, has higher ratings than Corden. Corden's does a YouTube thing with Adele and it gets 25, you know, 45 million views or whatever. He feels relevant because he is. And I, I think with TV in general, like we had some challenges with our show, like just what's the track record of a weekly show centered around conversations with sports and pop culture. Like who can I point to who's done this? It's like that, not a long list. Usually it's a performer. I'm not a performer. So how do we get people coming back? And, the key is going to be the quality of the conversation and having figuring out what the right bells and whistles are to kind of break it up so it's not just me talking for 30 straight minutes. And it's been really fun. The, my thing is I love this stuff. Like I love this to me is the fun part. I don't know what the final destiny of the show is, but it's been really fun trying to figure it out. And it was the same thing with Grantland. It was the same yeah. thing with 30 for 30. The same thing with my column like a million yeah. years ago. Same thing with the podcast. My podcast was terrible for a year (laughs) and then you figure out what works and what doesn't work and that's the thing is you can't be afraid to fail and you you have to have a thick skin with that stuff i would think it's like basketball it's like all right you go from college to the nba oh shit i'm not open anymore now Mm. what oh fuck every time i play there's some six six guy with a hand in my face so how do i get open oh i gotta start running around screen like you just kind of adapt and you trial and error you said it that was the word i was going to use you have to be adaptable you yeah, know, I wish I had asked you this question maybe five or six months ago when I first started. But I get asked this question a lot. You know, I'm trying to start a podcast or I'm looking to start a podcast. What's the best piece of advice? And you just said, you know, you look back on your first year and you feel like you could have maybe done it better. You would have done things differently. What would you have done differently? What, what did you what with did, the podcast? Yeah. What, what did you wish you knew when you first started? I was just terrible at it. <laughs> I, I, like even... There's some interview I gave, which somebody forwarded me, which is really interesting about, it's right, right before 30 for 30 came out. I did it with Alan Sepinwell. So um, it's probably like September, 2009. It's right before my book came out. And I was just basically saying like, 
this podcast thing because he listened to my podcast and this was during a day in 2009 i was always amazed that anyone listened to my podcast people would come up to me and be like i love your podcast i'm like really <laughs> that's unbelievable you listen to it like i, I was always shocked because he wouldn't tell me the numbers yeah. and then they they tried to sell it to uh serious and that's when i knew it was doing well because they wouldn't tell me how it was doing before then but i remember say in that interview i'm like i totally believe in this I think my show's good. I think I'm terrible at hosting it. <laughs> and eventually I'll get better at it. And I learned. And yeah. I got so many reps for it that eventually I got really good at interviewing people. But it took, it's like the Gladwell 10,000 hours. It took forever. No question. Just so much. So I, I think that's a big thing is just to keep working at it and keep trying stuff. And I think that's what, I've done six HBO shows. Each show has been different. Each format has been different. Like I'm, we're going to keep trying until we were, we settle on the right thing because that's how you have to do it. You just have to. This is the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick. Bill, give me a minute to tell my listeners about SeatGeek. As a lot of you may know, buying tickets online for sports and concerts has been a confusing process for a long time. It's always been hard to find the best deal for that game or show you want to go to, and none of those older ticket sites want to change that. But SeatGeek is different. They've come along and created an amazing app and website that makes it easier than ever for fans to buy and sell tickets. SeatGeek is always the first place I go to to look for tickets to a game or concert. I had the SeatGeek app on my phone, and I just used it the other day to look for tickets to see Adele, who was amazing, by the way. Everything about SeatGeek is designed to make life easier for sports and music fans. SeatGeek does all the price comparison for you by searching multiple ticket sites and ensuring that you get the best possible deal. SeatGeek does all the work and you save time and money. And SeatGeek wants to help you get the most bang for your buck. That's why every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value. You'll immediately see any underpriced seats and be able to find the best deals that fit your budget. Best of all, my listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, enter promo code JJ, and SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code JJ today. All right, let's get back to Bill. You're listening to The Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick. Let's jump to some sports talk. Yeah, let's do it. And I want to start. Are we talk Bo- about your Clippers. Or yeah, I want to start that? in Boston, actually. Mm. So you probably don't know this about me, but I'm actually a huge Red Sox fan. My dad is from Cleveland, so during the '90s when they were awesome, I rooted for Cleveland. And Manny Ramirez was my favorite player ever. It just so happened that Pedro Martinez on the Montreal Expos was also my favorite pitcher. Guys, Both those guys go, go, they go to the Red Sox around the same time. So I've become a huge Red Sox fan and have followed them ever since. And David Ortiz is going into his last season, and he announces that Kobe did the same thing, Jeter did the same thing. Yeah. Are you a fan of this farewell tour that guys are doing? No. Personally, I like what Duncan did. I mean, Duncan's always the model. Yeah. He's the greatest. Is he like the number one teammate you wish you would have had? What's yeah. like your top three? Duncan, for sure. Duncan has to be one. Yeah. I would say KG. Le- would you want to play with KG? <laughs> I think I would. Everyone I, swears by KG. I think I would vibe with KG. Yeah, yeah. he would have liked you because you work hard. He was like, if you work hard, I'm in. Yeah. If you don't work hard, you're out. The other guy, obviously, this, this maybe seems a little uh, obvious, but LeBron. I mean, think about the guys he's played with that he's made so much better, and they go somewhere else, or he leaves. Like when he left yeah. Cleveland, and Mo Williams is a good player. Mo Williams was an all star in Cleveland. Yeah. 
that, I mean, Jordan had the same thing when people weren't with Jordan anymore. Crater. <laughs> yeah. I think you would have liked Nash and Nowinski. I've always heard great yeah. things, and they're such good guys too. You know, well, Jared but, Dudley is. Jared you know, Dudley's a good one. He, he, well, he's my teammate, but he said Nash was like the best teammate he ever had, and it wasn't even close. And I re- I've written this story. I was at Sundance. Nash was doing a 30 for 30 for us. So it was 2010. Yeah. We had this big party for the uh, 30 for 30 people. So Nash and Dudley came, and they're sitting next to each other, and Dudley's ordering, and he's like, can I have this? What about, like, he was like Nash's son. <laughs> he had so much, Nash was just trying to help him. With, with the diet thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He, yeah. Was, he was like, can I, what, what, does this have sugar in it? And Steve's like, I, I, you know, he's in the middle of a conversation. But yeah, you get, Nash is like, everybody swears by Nash. What do, what do Nash, Dirk, Oh, we, and, I didn't answer the farewell tour question. Yeah, what, 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 hold on. What did, what did Nash, Dirk, and Duncan kind of all have in common, though? Selfless. Yeah. Good guys. Yeah. No egos. Yeah. I think like my favorite player, like when I was doing my book, I spent three years writing my book and I really wanted to figure out why teams won, what made players great, try to solve all these things that happened in the past with uh, these arguments about Will versus Russell, like really dive into it, try to figure it out. And I eventually settled on this whole theory about the secret, which is basically comes early and then I bring it back around in the end and Bill Walton talks about all this stuff. But the secret is basically like no ego. It was actually something Isaiah told me. He's like the secret of basketball is it's not about basketball. It's about all the other stuff. It's about how the guys relate. It's about a level of selflessness that you have to get to. It's about just winning and not caring who gets what and who's making more than who and all this stuff. And just like, are we a team? Are we going to win? That's it. Ever throw everything else out. And it sounds so weird to say the secret of basketball is it's not about basketball, but that really is the case. And you look at the Warriors the last two years, one of the most selfless teams we ever had. Like, no ego at all. And, you know, Clay gets hot. Steph doesn't care. We've never seen the best player in the league not care if another, if his team is just happy. Oh, this is great. Let's ride Clay. And then as it went on and on and they kept winning, they kept winning. Now the owner's talking stuff. Now you have Draymond acting out there in games, and it's like it caught up to them a little bit. And uh, by the end of the finals, they didn't. To- they were going one on one. Biggest possession of the game. Steph's going one on one against Kevin Love. There's no ball movement at all. It was like they kind of lost their way. And I don't know. It always comes back to the secret. Well, two things there. Number one, the basketball gods. I think caught up to the Warriors. I talked yeah. about it right after they lost the finals, and, and it just luck. seemed like. They tested the basketball gods a few too many times. It started with the owners' comments. Karma. Uh, Cl- Klosterman and I did an <laughs> and hour it, podcast you know, about And then it. by the end of it, you've got you know <laughs> Twitter wars and... Uh, Dick punches. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of stuff. Curry's wife is on Twitter, like taking shots at people. And it's just, they, they kind of lost their way. They were so good at just being this egoless, mm-hmm. we're just having fun. And I was amazed watching them. I, I still think the fact that they lost in the finals, it doesn't take away what we watched during the season. I've never seen a team that was just a constant heat check team like that. The the fearlessness that they had, it's just not common. I've never seen a team down 10 who are like, there's no bad shot. We're going to get hot. Trust the process. <laughs> keep shooting. Yeah. We're going to start making them. And uh, I, don't, I don't know. They're still memorable to me. I do think teams figured out how to wear Curry down. Your yeah. teammate, Chris was the first guy to kind of do that to him. He just, had to attack them. 
you have to attack, attack them, them and you have to beat the shit out of Curry. Yeah. And the Clippers were the first team that yeah. did it. And then OKC did it. And then Cleveland did it. And by the end of it, Curry wasn't the same yeah. guy. The second part of that was just, I want to go back to the secret sauce. Because I think this is really important. And, and it's really it's important, important when you talk about it specifically to basketball. Yeah. Because basketball is unlike any other sport, in my opinion. You're right. It really is. And if think about baseball, for instance. You bat every nine times. You're guaranteed to bat every nine times if you're in the lineup. You maybe get the ball hit to you a couple times. Right. Right. If you're a pitcher, you pitch every five days. You have a pretty specific role. Baseball, you could argue, is almost an individual sport. Football, you have a very specific job. A very specific job. You're a factory worker. Yeah. That's a good way to describe it. Basketball, there's no sport that requires on-court chemistry more. And that's why I, I hate the rise of basketball stats as much as I like the rise of basketball stats. Because some of the stats are awesome. Like, I like knowing that if you're in the right corner, you're shooting 58%. And it's like, don't put him, don't leave him alone in the right corner. He's going to be amazing. I like knowing about, you know, certain point guards who can get to the rim and their finishing rate is 80% versus, you know, I like all that stuff. But at the same time, I don't think you can totally measure player with stats. And and I think Russell is a great example. Isaiah is another one. I mean, I wrote about this in my book, but Isaiah could have averaged 30 a game anytime he wanted. Anytime he wanted, he could add 40 points. He knew he had to get everyone else involved, and his job was in the last four minutes to take over. Okay, so what's the stat for that? You don't fucking have it. I think Chris is another good example. I was just going to say, Chris Paul is, is very similar to that. He knows. He goes in the game. He's like, yeah. JJ sucked last night. I got to get him going. I'm going to spend the next first five minutes of this game getting JJ going. I think the difference with Chris, and this is something that stats don't point out, is he's so competitive. And Westbrook's like this, too, for me. He's so competitive that sometimes I wonder if it's to the detriment of his teammates. And I think he gets like this intensity about him. Whereas you look at at people like, I don't know, Duncan, Nowitzki, people like that, mm-hmm. they kind of stay the same way the whole time. Chris is just like a force of nature. And you can see it when, yeah. when you're at the games. He's stomping around. And sometimes I watch and I go, this is the most one of the most selfless guys in the league. I think it would be tough to play with this guy for eight months. I mean, I'm sure you've <laughs> thought that sometimes too, right? It's like, I always man. look to the core of a human. Yeah. You know, like Chris and I probably. Well, you are, love each other. Are, I love yeah. him. We argue on the court all the time. We argue off the court. We argue in the locker room. It happens. Yeah. I, but at the core, I know Chris just wants to win. Right. I, I really believe that. And well, so you're it doesn't bother tough, me. Because you've been toughened by well, the Duke it, stuff. Yeah, but it doesn't bother me. You put the wrong teammate, whether it's Chris with KG. There's this famous story about KG, about Patrick O'Brien. Oh, my gosh. The yeah. center that was there. He was drafted ahead of me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. In the 2006 draft. So he came in for camp and they yeah. signed him. They're kind of excited about him as a bet. And within a week, KG was just like, this guy's got, like, he just ran him literally yeah. off the team. And some guys are wired that way. But back to the stats thing, it's like Chris could score 30 in any game he wants. Westbrook, when Durant got hurt two years ago and he was, you know, he's 30, 12, and 10 every night and everybody's going crazy. Oh my God, look at these stats. It's like Oscar Robertson. It's like, yeah, the team's 500 when he does, you know, yeah. when he takes 30 shots in a game, they're like one and seven. I don't know if it's good for a team to go one on five. This is my big battle with Kobe. Kobe is the one guy I've just never, and I know it's just probably partly a Celtic thing, but I've just, I just never thought it would be fun to play with him. 
Like, would you have, I, you can say it now, he's out of the league. Would you have had fun being on Kobe's team? Like, I Probably I, not. Yeah. Probably not. I want to go back real quick. We're talking about the, the secret sauce. We're talking about chemistry. We're talking about stats. Yes. Let's put that in the context of this year's Warriors team coming up. Right. And There's not enough they points. floated above for two years, minus maybe two weeks this past June, sort of any ego issues, any chemistry issues. Right. And they've said all the right things this summer, but are guys going to be okay if they're averaging less points, if they're getting less shots? I mean, Durant's the best player on that team, I think. But is he... I mean, Durant might be the best player in the league. Yeah. I thought he was amazing in the Golden State series. That was the best. I, but and he's he always, shoot. to me, he's always amazing. I know, but he didn't, he didn't shoot that well. And people are like, oh, Durant's only eight for 24. It's like, are you fucking watching everything he's doing? He's defense, running the offense. Yeah. His defense this is the best he's ever played. Yeah. He's protecting the rim. He's rebounding. Like he's guarding Steph. He's guarding Draymond. He was, I thought he was incredible. You're right. Like Bosch, I thought made a really good point about this when he was on my show. Like Bosch, you could tell is still a little bit tormented about what happened in Miami. Yeah. Where he was the best guy getting 25 a night on Toronto on a team that didn't matter. And he goes to this team and he's a freaking appendage. And then every once in a while it's like, Chris Bosh, we need you. And he had to learn how to develop that switch. I think with Golden State, it's a math thing. It's like you have Durant, who averages 29 a game. You have Curry, who averages 30 a game. And you have Clay, who averages 25 a game. So it's 85 points a game. Three guys cannot score 85 <laughs> points a game on an NBA team. They can end up at 70 or 75. So who loses? Who loses points? I would say it's Durant. I think Durant drops from like 30 to 22. But I could see him shooting like 58% or some crazy. Like Mm -hmm. that year in LeBron had in Miami when he shot almost 60%. (laughs) Because Durant, people made this point, and, and it's such a great point. He's never had a hockey assist like in his entire career. The ball has never moved. It's always been like either pick and roll or one on five. And now he's going to be a situation where he starts the offense top of the key. He throws to Steph. Somebody's cutting around. It goes to Clay, but inside back out. And then Durant's wide open from 25. It's never happened in his life. He's going to have it over and over again now. When I had Kyle Korver on the podcast, we talked about our, our four best shooters in the NBA. And Kevin Durant was one of my best shooters in the NBA. I still no think he's question. one of the best shooters in the NBA. But people Absolutely. don't think of him as a shooter. I'm... As a basketball fan, I guess, not as a competitor, but I'm excited to see the shots he gets this year. Listen, people are not going to leave him like they left Harrison Barnes, but he's going to get easier shots. You can't. Well, the other he thing. May, he, he, I think you're right. I don't think he averages 30, but I think he's more efficient. Here's the other which thing. Which is crazy because he's already pretty fucking efficient. Right. So he took, he would go nine for 20 every game, something like that, or 10 for 21. And now maybe he goes. 10 for 16, 10 for 15. But I think people have made this point too, but it's another great point. Golden State didn't have a post-up guy. They didn't have somebody that when stuff broke down, you'd be like, we're just going to dump it to this guy. And you know, most people don't have a, a post-up guy anymore. But with Durant, he's really good at posting up. OKC couldn't really do it that much because they didn't have the spacing. But they could throw the ball to him. All right, you're playing them. First of all, who's guarding him on the clips? Let's say Wesley Johnson. Wes or Luke and Bamute, yeah. He posts up Wesley. They have Draymond at the top. 
they have Steph on one side, Clay on the other, and Iggy on the far corner. What do you do? You have Durant on the right block, you have Iggy in the left corner, and then you have three shooters around. What do you do? What's interesting about this scenario, prior to Durant getting there, they didn't have if the guy. Golden State threw the ball in the post, they're running splits. Right. So they used Bogut and Green as sort of a hub at the mid post. Yep. And Clay and Steph are running these fucking splits, which are damn near impossible to guard. Teams ended up starting to switch them, which of course, once they know you're switching, they're changing the angle now. And it's just it's one of the hardest actions in basketball to guard. And it also hurts you. Yeah. It hurts you on the other end because you're just running around right. chasing people. So now you're throwing it into a score in Durant. And I'm wondering if they run the same action or if they just give him space. Because if they run the same action, whoever is guarding Iguodala is just going to 2-9 in the middle of the paint and, right. and tag the cutters as they go through. Okay, um, now what if but, you put Barbosa in but that if spot? They're, but if they're just spacing, though, what do you do? Because if you send somebody, if you really commit to sending help, then you got four shooters around them. You have tough. to send Iguodala's guy. Yeah, but his, he's the low guy. Right. He's at the dunker. So then you're you're essentially asking someone who's guarding Draymond, Clay, or Steph to guard two guys, sort of split the difference between Iguodala and whoever else they're guarding. And here's the other thing. All right, so Iguodala's guy comes over to help sure. out. Durant's seven feet tall. <laughs> yeah. He just passes. The, Iguodala cuts. He passes yeah. him for a dunk. That's the part I don't think we've fully processed yet, is if they start posting him up a little bit, what happens? And that's the part that like breaks my brain when I think about it. Because when you did it with OKC, you're like, oh, well, Adam's guy or, or Robertson's guy, one of those guys is going to come over. And then he has to give it up. And now Westbrook's taking a three. Great. Please take threes, Russell. Like when you play OKC, you want Russell Westbrook to take threes because he's 30%. By the way, he's going to be amazing next year. I don't know if it's going to trade so how si- many wins. He signed his extension with OKC. Were you surprised he signed his extension? No. I did all the math last week on uh, the NBA Ringer show. Yeah. It made the most sense. Two years, yeah. clear the, option get for to the, the third. Get the ten year max. Yeah. Get the ten year, and if he wants to get traded in February, it's, it makes it more likely for them to get a bigger haul for them. Yeah. The other thing you, you maybe didn't mention on your show when you talked about this, but where's he going to go? Like, if he wants to go somewhere that's a better situation, I don't know there that there's none. a better situation right now. In two years, there may be. Boston could have contended for a title if he yeah. wanted to. Because yeah. Boston Boston was the only team that didn't have to give up present assets to get him. They yeah. could have given off future pick stuff. Yeah. So they could have kept a team that had 48 wins plus Al Horford plus Westbrook. You know, now that's a real contender. But, you know, it's interesting with OKC. I think Oladipo is really good. I really, I just like them. I like getting guys from crappy teams, guys that were teams that were poorly coached, teams that you think about him like he never played with an above average point guard, never had an above average coach, second pick in the draft, has the pedigree, and he's a competitor. Like you played him, he's competitive. Plays hard. Yeah. So they Orlando, put him with Westbrook. Orlando picked Fournier over him, though. Yeah. And Fournier is good, but it's not like they picked Clay Thompson over him. So how good is he? I don't my know. question. I mean, I watched you in Orlando for five years, hoping four years, hoping the Celtics would get you because I thought you were on the wrong team. Yeah. Some guys end up on the wrong team. Oladipo clear like the first year they played him at point guard. He's not a point guard. Right. You were playing on a team. The best point guard you ever played with was Jameer. Jameer was fine. He wasn't an all star. 
you play on a team with Chris in a system where they're trying to get you the ball and you're, and all of a sudden, you, you know, statistically you jump. It's the thing I like about Oladipo is his mindset. He thinks he's great. Yeah. And so does is, Westbrook, which is half the battle of the NBA. <laughs> yeah. So you have him, you have Westbrook and you have Adams, yeah. none of whom are afraid of anybody. Yeah. It's a nice foundation. They don't have enough length. I think they need to make one more trade, get somebody who can guard a Kevin Durant, not guard him, but at least kind of guard him. I was surprised. I guess you had, I don't know, maybe cap wise, you don't have a choice, but I was surprised that the Clips brought everybody back. Just ran it back. <laughs> I know you can't say anything. <laughs> so, I mean, what other option do we have? Though? I guess you didn't have another option. We had two options. We had bring everybody back and, Maybe or make a blockbuster trade or or trade make a blockbuster. Well, trade. you know how I feel about Blake. I thought he was the third best player in the league two playoffs ago. Yeah, and I I just would not have given up on him. There there is something to be said I think for keeping the core together, patience, being close, being close, being right there, and hoping something breaks your way. I guess 2015 is the big question because I went to that game. That was, I think this a top three in any sport flukiest sporting event I've ever been to the game six against the Houston. Josh Smith game. Yeah. The Josh Smith game. and Corey Brewer game. Yeah. I Corey Brewer is one B Josh Smith is one a, <laughs> but so I'm sitting behind the benches. So I, I love watching the bench body language, the whole thing. James Harden quit in that game. He just flat out quit. He was done. He was done in the huddles. He checked out when they started coming back. He wasn't even standing up the footage. I'm sure we'll confirm it. The Rockets quit. You broke them. Everyone relaxed. Everybody started celebrating. And the big issue was that because you didn't really have a bench that year, you had Blake just wore down. Blake put together 11 straight amazing just physical specimen playoff games. And he started to wear down. Josh Smith starts doing stuff. Corey Brewer makes a three. The fans who had just never been in a situation like that the fans just always expect the worst. They're panicked. Now it's like 11. Now it's nine. And it just snowballed. But I think you could have beaten Golden State that next round, potentially. It's I a great too. what if. And, I, and that's the case for keeping the team. Yeah, that is a great case. And to me, this year was a wash, given Blake's injuries and then the two injuries that happened in the playoffs. Like, you, There's really no way to assess our team from this past year. I will say our bench was better. And going back to that Houston series, I can remember Blake and I talking afterwards after the Game 7 loss at Houston and both of us thinking to ourselves, like saying to ourselves, I don't know if I've ever been so tired in a game as that Game 7. Yeah, and you guys were dead. Our starters had a, a, a huge load that season. We had a seven-game series against San Antonio that was a slugfest. It was amazing. It was the hardest series I've ever played in outside yeah. of probably the Boston series in 09, which we won. And Hey. <laughs> no. Sorry, I had to get that one in there. <laughs> he went by like thirty, and then, and then we go to we go play Houston, and and you know it's partly is a travel. We're going back and forth between Texas, you know, every other day, and then you know I'm guarding Harden for seven games, and still trying to do what I do offensively. It just that game seven, we were wiped, completely Doc, wiped. Doc, the GM, coach, very good. Doc, the GM hurt you guys that year. Doc, the GM has improved, but that you just didn't have the you didn't have the guys that could. Blake was playing like 45 minutes a game. By the way, it's hard in like the biggest nightmare to go. Who's the biggest nightmare to guard? Westbrook? You don't have to guard Westbrook. I don't have to. Of the guys I have to guard. Who's the one? Harden's got to be the one just because that one fucking move always yeah, works. Harden, Harden's the toughest guy. 
the threat of a three-point shot makes guys harder to guard. Yeah. Like Dar- DeMar DeRozan is a great player. Yeah. But you can play off him. Yeah, you just you play off of him and, and you try to keep your hands back when he drives and, and you hope that he makes contested. If he makes contested twos, you know, from 17, 18 feet, yeah, you live with that. Harden is tough. The other guy that's still really tough is D. Wade. D. Wade's still tough to guard. And he has his moments. Yeah, he has his games where you're like, fuck, this is D. Wade. Like, this is, this is D. Wade. And then there's other nights, you know, I, over the last three or four years, I've guarded him a ton. And there's other nights where you're like, man, just he just doesn't have it tonight. I got lucky almost. D. Wade's like a running back that can still get 200 yards in a game. Yeah. But 17 straight weeks of, you know, giving him the ball, he's going to have. I couldn't believe Miami didn't take him back, though. I thought that was amazing because. That was one of the all-time shocking. I just amazing. Team player relationships gone sour. I just. I it's never a, thought he would leave Miami. It's amazing. I spent a lot of time in Miami those two years for the, the two years I did Countdown. Never in a million years would have guessed Wade wasn't going to finish his career there. Like completely beloved. Alpha dog, king of South Beach. Everyone's got the Wade jerseys. I mean, it's just, it's, a, it's crazy. It just goes to show you though, you never know. <laughs> you really do. Like you knew Duncan was never going anywhere and you know Dirk's never going anywhere. But man, I thought Wade was on that level and it's crazy. You're listening to The Vertical Podcast with J.J. Redick. Hey guys, as you know, I travel a lot. Sometimes I just want to close my eyes, throw on the headphones, and get lost in a great story. Well, I'm going to hook you up with a great way to do that. Just remember this code, JJ, and you can get a free audiobook from Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash JJ and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash JJ. That's audible.com slash JJ and get started today. Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine, and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. If there's one book that I would suggest that I'm really excited about listening to, it's the new book, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War by Joseph Leconte. The book, of course, is about how World War I shaped the beliefs and the writings of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. It'd be an awesome book to listen to. For Audible, there are free apps for iPhone, iPad, Android, and Windows Phone. So grab the free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership by going to audible.com slash JJ. That's audible.com slash JJ. All right, let's get back to my guest, Bill Simmons. You're listening to The Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick. So this year is the 20th anniversary of my favorite movie of all time, yeah. Swingers. I yeah, know, I know you were a fan of Swingers. We did as well. an oral history of Grant. I read it was great. The oral Heather Graham wouldn't be in it though. It was amazing. It, it really was amazing, and I really enjoyed it. And I know you're you're a big critic of Hollywood and and the sequel game. So let's let's play a game. Let's pretend Swing a sequel. They make a sequel or a reboot in 2016. Who is the cast? I'm going to give you my cast. Okay. And I want I want your opinion oh, so on it's this. not the same cast. No, it's a different cast. Okay. We're updating it. Okay. So in in 96 when they filmed this, there was no Tinder, there was no social media, there was no grinder. I mean, it, it would be all Uber. The, all there the scenes no with the cars. Yeah. yeah, Uber would be. The movie would be totally different. Yeah. But let's start with the cast because I think this 
this is a fun exercise, and I've spent a little bit of time thinking about this. All right, well, wouldn't for, the cast be all no names? I mean, that was what one no, of the things that you, made Swingers no, great. I'm, I'm, I'm my. You're going. You're paying. You for, can. You can give me the no names, but this is who I have. So okay. for Trent, I've got Ryan Gosling. Is he too old? No, no. no you going older Swingers? No, 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 no. Crazy Stupid Love. That's his character in Crazy Stupid Love. Okay, is like okay a modern day Trent Walker. Okay, all right, Mikey. This was a hard one. I, I, I actually can't decide. Jonah Hill or Channing Tatum? Jonah Hill. It's got to be realistic that he got dumped. <laughs> Girls wouldn't dump Channing Tatum. That's a great point. That's a great point. All right, Zach Efron for the role of Sue. That's a good one. I was thinking of Zach Efron for Double Down Trent, but I, I believe in Zach Efron more than others. Initially, when I thought sort of young Hollywood, yeah. he was the choice for Trent Walker. But the. I would go Miles Teller for Sue. Oh, my God. I love Miles Teller. I'm buying everyone's Miles Teller stock. Miles Teller stock, it rose high, and then it dipped big time. I bought it all up. I'm a Miles Teller fan. He's got the Pazienza movie coming out, the boxing movie coming out. It's going to be big for him. All right, Rob. We need someone subdued. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I like it. Who's the girl at the end? The girl at the end, Lorraine Emma Stone. Just quirky enough. Very Heather Graham-esque. I would go J Law. <laughs> if if we if we could dream cast, like I might as well go J Law. All right. For Charles, I've got either Michael B. Jordan or your guy Lamorne Morris. <laughs> I'd vote for Lamorne. This has been of on the show. Would. Yeah. He's great. Just and, wear some glasses and a hat. Yeah. And then <laughs> and then we need a Nikki. We need a Nikki. That was the girlfriend? That was the girl. Oh, that's at the, the, girl, bar, the waitress. At the bar. What wasn't it? Nikki. Yeah. yeah. Mike, don't ever oh, call they, me Oh, yeah, again. yeah, yeah. Um, the girl that, that... I would vote Emma Stone for that one. Really? What about the waitress in the beginning, the one that uh, they took back to the trailer? Cri- was it Christy? No. I, I forget, but she was great. She's yeah. She was in Dazed and Confused, too. Yeah, she Heather was. Graham, I just want to point out, one of the great runs anyone's had that nobody... It's a little like Dwight Howard in the when he made all the first-team All-NBAs in a row and nobody talks about it now. Like Dwight Howard is the best center in the league for like six years, and nobody wants to admit it now. Is Dwight Howard a Hall of Famer? 100%. He's the best center for an entire stretch. Like, no question. But uh, Heather Graham was like, dazed and confused, swingers, boogie nights, Austin Powers. Like in a, in a three-year span. Four-year span. Great run. One of my favorite actresses ever. All right, so let's get to this week's four on four then. Uh, you're a Boston native, moved yeah. out here when you started writing for Jimmy Kimmel yeah. in the early 2000s. Do research. I do my research, man. Yeah. And uh, you haven't left. Yeah. I moved here in 2013. I've been here three years. I hopefully will never leave. Uh, When's your contract up? Next summer. <laughs> oh, you're free. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, oh, we'll my see. God. You get paid. We'll see. All right. So <laughs> well, maybe you can buy the rigger. <laughs> We'll see. So the, this week's four and four for, for us non-natives of yeah. Southern California, the four best things about L.A. that you didn't know when you moved here. Number one is how much better the Pacific Ocean is than the Atlantic Ocean. I just feel stupid believing in the Atlantic Ocean all those years. <laughs> the Atlantic Ocean is freezing cold and there's mosquitoes and bugs and flies and rocks and it sucks and none of us ever wanted to admit it and then you come to the Pacific and it's really like Shawshank Redemption where it's just 
you just Andy sanding the boat and it's just happy and it's great. So that'd be my first. Second would be how many transplants are here? I think LA gets a bad rap as a sports town and some of it's deserved, but I was amazed by how many Boston fans were here. And I think Chicago fans move here and they're mm-hmm. amazed by how many Chicago fans and New York fans, same thing, Philly fans. When those teams you have are your in, tribes. When those teams are at Staples Center playing the Clippers. Yeah. It sometimes feels like a road game for us. How many Celtic fans? It's like what, yeah. six thousand Celtic <laughs> yeah. fans? There's green everywhere. And they're much louder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I love that. I had no idea that was gonna happen. I was always worried about leaving Boston because I felt like it would just wouldn't be the same to be a fan of the teams. And the reality is I miss going to Celtic games. That's the big thing. But I get to watch whatever I want. I'm still watching the same amount of Boston sports that I did. It's just I never went to Patriot games. I never went to Bruin games. Went to eight Red Sox games a year. But my point is you can follow your team wherever you are, and it was really easy to do that. And then the fourth thing about L.A., it's, it's a subtle thing, but the proximity you have to all these different things. And it's like whether it's the different beaches – whether it's Las Vegas, whether it's Palm Springs, Mexico, Hawaii, it, it just Santa Barbara, Wine Valleys, wherever you want to go, it's available. And things are close on the West Coast. San Francisco is not that far. You know, it's it's just uh, it's a very malleable place. When I was in Orlando for seven years, you're trapped in Orlando. Yeah, but I, I when I would come, we'd come to L.A. or I'd come here occasionally in the summer. Like I didn't fully appreciate it. L.A. seemed like a very overwhelming place to me. Yeah, and then I moved here, and you carve out your little niches, and you figure out where you want to live, and you enjoy it. But the number one thing for me is how great the state of California is. And you, you mentioned it. Like this summer, my wife's been pregnant. She, we haven't been able to travel. We, she doesn't want to get on a plane. We've been to San Diego. We went I forgot down, to mention San Diego. We went down to Pelican Hill in yeah. Orange County. We did Santa Barbara twice. I forgot to mention Orange County. We went to Big Sur. Yeah. Um, you we did, did the drive to San Francisco, which is oh, amazing. It's, it's just, it's, it's incredible. And if you golf, I mean, the golf courses are yeah. fantastic. And also, like, I think it's way more diverse than people realize, yeah. which I think is cool. It's got pockets, and the pockets, you can make whatever you want yeah. out of it, but... You know, like the version of, I guess, Brooklyn here would be that Echo Park, right. Silver Lake, that right. whole area. Um, so you're here for good, then you're going to raise your kids out here. Yeah, I mean, my kids are 11 and 8. I think You're it's, raising them. You're in the it, midst of raising them. I think them. it's happening. You're, yeah. you're in the midst. I, I'm on the West Coast. I, I will say I'm on the West Coast. The other thing I like about the West Coast, and I didn't think I was going to like this, is you're three hours behind. And I actually do like that. I like waking up in the morning and having a whole new cycle to run through. Like while my son's eating his yogurts and watching Timu Mizumi, I'm like on Business Insider. I'm like, I've got news to read. This is great. But that if I wake been up my at 6 a.m. on the East Coast, you have shit to do. Yeah, that would have been my fifth thing. Yeah. It's great for football. It's just great to wake up and stuff's already happened. Yeah. And I always notice when I go back, you like you said, you wake up and it's like, oh, nobody's awake yet. Yeah, it's like, oh, shit, what are we going to do? Uh, so, yeah. Right. Say, that's a good list. Bill, I appreciate the time. Uh, this is fun. This was more yeah. fun than being on a studio show. Yeah, this is great. I really appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciate it too. Thank All you. Right. Thanks, Bill. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick. I'd really like to thank today's guest, Bill Simmons. Remember to subscribe and listen to new and archived episodes wherever you listen to the podcast. You can tweet me at JJ Reddick with any questions and comments. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, Audible and SeatGeek. 
be sure to support them the way they support us here at the Vertical Podcast. You can now hear the Vertical Podcast Network every weekday at 3 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Satellite Radio, on Sirius Channel 214, and XM Channel 203, and on the Sirius XM app on Channel 967. Catch me every Monday, the Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix every Tuesday, and the Vertical Podcast with Woj every Wednesday on Sirius XM. Or, as always, on demand here on the podcast. I'll catch you next week. This has been a digital media production. Find your voice.